The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Well, I'll use the next hour and 15 minutes to preach you a sermon. I know, I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to wake you up a little bit. It's good to be here. I want to start with a story that you might know. There was a man who was going down a road, and he was fallen upon by bandits, and he was beaten, and all his things were taken, and he was left on the side of the road uh, to die. And a family came by and saw him and went by. And a clergyman came by, saw the man, and went by. And a merchant came by and saw the man beaten on the side of the road in the dust, and he went by. Finally, another came by, and she said, Who is this man? He might need my help. And so she picked him up, and she brought him to an inn, and she paid for his lodging and got a doctor to come and took care of him and healed in that place. Now, what is that story? It's not a rhetorical question. It's actually a question. Anybody ever heard that story? Yeah? What is it? The Good Samaritan. Right, but wrong. The story actually has its roots back in Buddhism. The Buddha told the same story. That's why I didn't tell you it was a Levite and a priest. And the Buddha told that story 600 years before even Jesus ever was alive. And the reason we had that story in Christianity is probably because there were Buddhists in Jerusalem teaching around the time of Jesus, teaching Jews and all the people there about compassion. Now that's all that history is for another day, but the point of the story is what? That is a rhetorical question. <laughs> the point of the story is, is my neighbor my responsibility? Do I, must I care about those around me who don't have what I have? Right? This is an ancient, old, religious question. And it's probably on our hearts all the time. It was yesterday on my heart when I walked down the street through the Tenderloin. It's on my heart as I listen to the news about Florida and the Ukraine. But we forget. We forget when we're in conflict. We forget when we're in divorce or when we have a problem with our sibling or when our neighbor puts up a sign we don't like. We forget this ancient question. Is my neighbor my responsibility? Of course, the easy answer is yes, but we forget. We forget not only when my neighbor is a problem for us, but we forget, especially in times of division. We forget that old question, who is my neighbor? 
when division feeds a sense of superiority or fortune or the notion that we have choices and maybe others don't, but we forget that others are our neighbor. I'm not talking about the division of our country so much. I am, I know, in the left coast. My heart is in your progressive values here, but while in Dallas, we are similarly a progressive city, by the way, Dallas, Texas, we have MAGA signs, Mothers Against Greg Abbott, and across from Mothers Against Greg Abbott signs, we have Let's Go Brandon signs and Confederate flags. You probably have less of that. The divisions are real in our neighborhoods. They are real to us, just as real as they are from state to state. Here in this progressive state, we feel comforted. <laughs> Progressives, we feel, we come here, right? And we just feel like, man, this is easy. But your state is signaling constantly progressive values, while mine is, mine is signaling ultra-conservative values, like we heard in the story, the reflection. The research actually says that this isn't good for anybody. That virtue signaling, things like putting signs on our front lawns, actually creates more division than it does unity. So, while I'm here to talk about some of the reproductive justice issues, I just want to remind us that here behind the, the great blue state lines, there is comfort. There is a sense of uh, entitlement almost that I hear in some of what you say, and I'm not blaming you for that. I wish we had more of that. But I also want to warn that the more you signal a virtue of your progressive values as a state, the more divided we become. So in the spirit of Thomas Starr King, who is buried here on your land, a person who worked for the unity of our country, I want to commit to you that to partnership with me and with Texas, especially on the issues that we are talking about today, reproductive justice issues, is of utmost importance. Partnering together and understanding that we are not separate in this. Now, the last time I was in this sanctuary was probably a Star King graduation many, many years ago. What I didn't know when I was sitting there a long time ago is what would happen to this country and my ministry. I didn't know the epidemic of suspicion and division would sweep our country. You and I, who were there, didn't know the world would change with COVID and Trump and all the rest of it. We wouldn't know how hope would rise and fall. While there have been many losses over the years on issues so important to us, and the loss of real human life, of loved ones, and our hopes, 
The one fact that we can count on today is that we are here living, breathing, caring for one another, working, learning, changing, and for some committing to things we never imagined we would. And that is hopeful to me. I am hopeful because my work in Dallas over the last 20 years has bloomed in a direction that I came here yesterday to talk about and I'm here to talk about with you today. First and foremost, I am here to ask you what kind of spiritual commitments you're willing to make to the world you live in. What creative responses do you have for the world that is making demands on you? What battles between hope and loss are you waged in while epidemics of hopelessness and division and loss swirl around us? What neighbor needs you today? These are questions I'm asking myself all the time while working in the battlefield of Texas, the battle that we are in on repro rights and justice. Now, a little history to, to, just to tell you why this big white guy is in the middle of that fight. And that is because the church where I serve was the church that created the Roe v. Wade case. The women of our church started the Roe v. Wade case to sue the district attorney of Dallas County. They and Planned Parenthood took that case with the lawyers they found to the 5th District and up to the Supreme Court. So you can be proud of that connection also. And I always stand on their shoulders whenever I talk about the repro work that I have been involved in. And so much has happened. Those ministers that helped Sue back in those days were part of the clergy consulting service. I'm sure the ministers in this uh, church were part of it. They were all over the country, Unitarians, Jews, disciples, Episcopalians. The church uh, that I serve, the ministers used to take women and drive them to the Gulf of Mexico to put them on ships to go out into international waters to have abortions. A few years ago, about seven years ago, I got call from a member of my church who asked me, would you come to the abortion clinic where I work to do a blessing of the patients? So eventually I came up there and we decided to, instead of just respond to phone calls, that we would create an interfaith, multi-faith volunteer chaplaincy that sat inside the clinic so that there was friendly, supportive faith inside even while outside the clinic, there were people yelling and screaming at patients. And so for many years, I sat with patients on my volunteer time. We saw 100 patients a day for six days a week in that one clinic, in that one city in North Texas. I met so many of them, 13-year-old girls, who had been lured into relationships with people in their apartment buildings, military personnel, women with college athletic scholarships, mothers of three and two jobs trying to 
solve the problems that poverty weighted them down with. Mothers of people like people in this church who had no problems at all finding an abortion and everything, everything in between. When the state of Texas passed the six-week ban, meaning if there was any detection of what they called heartbeat activity, which wasn't really heartbeat activity, after six weeks, the abortion would be illegal. We went in the clinic from 100 patients a day to about 15 patients a day. And we started taking those patients that qualified over the six weeks to New Mexico. And we flew them every other week in groups of 20 with a chaplain or a rabbi by their side. And we gave them love and support for the 17-hour day where we flew, had procedures, and flew them home. Until Roe went away and the trigger ban eliminated abortion in the state of Texas. So just to put a, a button on this, to explain to you the severity of what we're dealing with, you can do the math, right? We went from 600 patients a week to now seeing about 100 patients in the clinic a week that we can't even serve. In those meetings with patients within the clinic, the only thing the staff can do is hand them a phone number of someone in New Mexico in our partnership and coalition who will then make arrangements for them, the patients, pay for the, the abortions, create a... Uh, uh, reservation on an airplane, tell them where and when to meet a chaplain, and then we will fly them to New Mexico and back. The limitations on the ability of under-resourced people to follow that plan are incredible. So doing the math, we go from 600 patients a week who got voluntary abortions to maybe 10 a week, who we can help. I ask you, where are the other 590 people? 13-year-old girls. College athletes with scholarships. Military personnel. Mothers with three children and two jobs. And everyone in between. The scale of this tragedy is in the unseen tragedy. We know the stories of the fetal anomalies coming through the emergency rooms, but we don't know the stories of the 590 a week in one corner of Dallas, in one part of Texas, of the people who can't access abortion unless by their own resources they drive themselves or find us and get to New Mexico or Kansas City or Denver. 
Compound that by all the states from El Paso to the Atlantic Ocean under the Mason-Dixon line. Think about how this is a war on the poor. Because if my child gets someone pregnant, I'm going to fly them to a clinic. But most of the people we're dealing with do not have the resources to do this. In Texas hospitals, we're hearing that there are mothers who are coming with fetal anomalies who are being sent home for up to nine days until the patient is so septic that the doctor has no legal liability to perform the abortion. The mortality rate, the mother mortality rate in Texas is now 57%. The rest of the country is 33%. But in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, I am still hopeful. I am reminded of the theological commitment shaped by James Luther Adams which he called ultimate optimism. It is optimism that grows in me and is transformed in me by the work that we do to help even one person. James Luther Adams coined the term ultimate optimism for us saying one of our cherished values, our cherished values as Unitarian Universalists is the assertion that while the immediate optimism was unrealistic, the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. For James Luther Adams and for me, and I've been accused of being a serial realist by my wife, you can talk to her about that later. She thinks I'm a pessimist, actually. I'll talk to her about it. But I believe in ultimate optimism in things that last, in hopes realized, in the possibility of change. And that ultimate optimism is that humanity will always guide itself back from even the worst precipices of hatred and despair. And I believe James Luther Adams because he formulated this idea witnessing what was going on in Europe as the Nazis swept through countries rounding up Jews. I believe this because he saw and I see in the marathon of human life that does not end this week or next or the next election day or the next great idea. The marathon of change is that it is bending the universe toward justice and possibility. For me, I see ultimate optimism raise its head in commitments. David Brooks, in the book I excerpt today, writes that the complete definition of commitment is the falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. Our commitments give us a sense of purpose and better yet, can transform us. And I know this because I have been transformed over these last years helping patients get abortions that they wanted and needed. Their pain, their struggle, 
Their hope, their gratitude transforms me by the realities that we share. Realities that say no body, no human body is something that should be thrown away. We believe together that bodily autonomy is the most important thing in the world. We believe that the body is not a thing of shame. That life is made up of difficult choices and alliances. That all creation is good and includes a beautiful diversity of sacred bodies and sexualities and reproductive journeys. We believe that the dignity of sacred bodies and moral agency of people deserves respect. And so in my church, we've created things that support this very notion. We created what we call Holy Informed Sex Ed, an organization that takes our, our whole lives, our comprehensive sexuality curriculum, out into communities that are never going to walk through the doors of our church. And we hand out Plan B at the front desk. And we had an abortion story wall all summer where people wrote their stories and were lifted from notions of shame that they had carried for 40, 50, or more years. And we teach sacred like you do here. We're part of the Sacred Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. And this winter, I'm going to teach a class on writing your own repro-spiritual autobiography. All because we believe that bodily autonomy, the agency of women and queer people and gender diverse people and people with disabilities and immigrants and indigenous populations and people of color who have often been denied this respect is of the utmost importance and is not just words but is life and death. Because in this war that we are waging back in Texas, we understand that we are moving from choice to life and death issues, from rights to dignity and justice issues. That real lives are lost when politicians make laws and courts overturn laws that affect people that they will never meet mostly the poorest people in our communities who will never be seen. And so we commit to turning the wheel of culture so that we return dignity and love to one another, that we answer that ancient call of our faiths and all faiths of all time, that we see our neighbor and we don't just rest on our own comfort, but we reach out and we make change and we do it with love. This is the work of sacred. Our multi-faith, multi-racial, multi-generational alliance that I helped start. And we are trying to turn the tide of a horrible narrative that is sweeping our country that is anti-abortion and anti-body and anti-sexuality and racist and homophobic and downright evil. Our work says 
that we don't give up, that we're part of a long marathon. As I said to the 25 members of your church who were here yesterday starting to do the work of sacred, we're on a marathon, but we haven't even gotten our shoes out of the box or put the laces in them. (laughs) We're not going to win back the case from the Supreme Court in a year or two. The evangelicals took 50 years to get us here. And we, part of a sacred alliance, this church, part of 90 to 100 congregations right now of all kinds doing this work, understand that this is a marathon to turn the culture back over 50 years, which most of us will not ever see the result of. And that is faith, my friends. That is commitment. That is answering the call of who is my neighbor. It is doing something good with our lives. Not just because we can, but because it is our faith. Because commitments build moral character. Because moral foundation is always relational. Because emerging from our commitments, we cannot fade away behind curtains of privilege. And within that, we do this with ultimate optimism. A hope formed in knowing that we're not just spitting platitudes here. We live in a world where this issue of reproductive dignity is a life and death issue. And doing something about it is bound up in your willingness to take on commitments to help others in your life, first maybe, in your home, or in your neighborhood, or in your church. And then pondering what happens when we join together and move out into the world. When dedicated congregations like this one says, even though we live in a high access state where you can get an abortion down the street and no one will even bat an eyelash, that we have work to do here. We have work to turn the wheel of the national culture. And that commitment is hope. Not turning your back on your neighboring states, for me, is hope. Even though you live in a place where you do not fear going to prison for helping someone to get a medical procedure they have a right to, you can be committed to doing the work of becoming a skilled community around reproductive dignity and figuring out what else you can add with your skills and passions And for me, that is hopeful. It is hopeful to wade out into these waters with you. For you to ponder that your neighbors are also living in the Dakotas and in Arizona and in Utah and in Nevada and in Idaho, neighboring states which are in jeopardy of being free, and that when they are not free, you are not free when you take up this question seriously, who is my neighbor? 
when we hear each other into speech. When you hear my stories about what we're dealing with in Texas, it matters. It matters that we're not just signaling virtue, but we are in this together. My friend and co-creator of Sacred, Angela Tyler Williams, said this when we, some of us convened in January. She said, we have to do more. We have to do more, more human, more loving, more compassionate, more just, more liberating, more in tune with the holy and divine in and around each of us. We have seen just how spectacularly our systems of government structures have failed us. We have seen how the court has failed us. Now it's up to us, she says. In a world that is scary and dangerous, we must come together. We must take care of each other and our communities. We are the ones who will save us, she says. To me, this is hope embodied. We are hope embodied, courageous people who meet the day head on, who come here on Saturday and spend the whole day talking about reproductive dignity, and you worshipers who show up here on a Sunday to hear a Texas preacher rant on about hope. Hopeful people. Now I could hammer on you for a while and not stop talking about despair and hope and repro. I could do this all day but I've already used up all my time. <laughs> I want to just acknowledge that this church, this faith, any effort that you take on to learn or be engaged in this marathon is sacred work. Sacred in the sense that it means we are dedicated to a faithful purpose that is bigger than our own needs. As you figure out how to respond to the world and your community and your people and your lives and make a difference, or just heal a relationship, or reach out past a perceived division, you are working in the field of hope. And so, friends, I want to put this in perspective for you. The next time you feel a moment of despair, think about this. If a minister from deep in the heart of Texas who has seen the underbelly of the nasty, violent, anti-choice, anti-abortion movement, who has received letters and emails and phone calls you can hardly imagine threaten my life, spoke words spoken by so-called Christians, a minister who's standing up here who has now a budget for security guards on Sunday and cameras around the campus, and a direct line in his phone to the FBI agent who handles hate and violence around faith communities. If that minister can stand up here and tell you that even despite all of what he's dealing with, there is still hope, then you, friends, you can have hope. And if you can't hope, then just be present. Just show up like you did today. It's enough. And you're showing up here buoys my heart, and it buoys my congregation's heart, who know that we have allies that go way beyond the borders of Texas. In this together, friends,
a hope because we are together. Amen and amen. I know a little girl who's 10. She designs stylish outfits for her Barbie dolls and performs astonishing feats of strength on the jungle gym at her school. She's also capable of becoming pregnant, just like millions of girls and women who are reminded of that fact each month for some 35 years of their lives. That's about 420 times a wanted or unwanted pregnancy could potentially occur. I would not make note of this fact were it not for the Supreme Court's Dodds decision, which puts the lives of girls and women under the control of others. And some of those others do mean them harm, if it can be couched as protecting human life from the moment of conception. Two examples spring to mind. The threats to the family of the OBGYN who performed an abortion on a 10-year-old girl, and the Texas senator who pledged to reintroduce his 2021 bill to open up the death penalty for people who have or perform an abortion. As this gentleman put it last week, any lawmaker who thinks we should weaken our pro-life laws is drinking Austin swamp water. My own story is way less dramatic, although I wouldn't have said so at the time. When the boomer generation was entering adulthood, fear of an unwanted pregnancy was in the air we breathed. Prohibition of abortion was the law of the land, so fixed that no one bothered to complain about it. But not one of the young people I knew wanted to have a baby before they had a chance to have a job or become independent or maybe get married. Nevertheless, a number of them did get pregnant, and so did I. I hadn't been worried because my boyfriend promised he would not get me pregnant, and also because I had misremembered certain information from my high school health class. But when the real realization sank in, I called my boyfriend and was told that he was away on a trip with a previous girlfriend. My best friend Jane, the only other person I would have confided in, was in rural Thailand in the Peace Corps. I had no idea what to do, so I didn't do anything for several weeks while my boyfriend tried to find out about backstreet abortions. Eventually, he came across the name of a council of ministers, priests, and rabbis who helped women with unwanted pregnancy. I called the phone number and gave the secret password. This led to my meeting a minister in Brooklyn and being given phone numbers of physicians who were willing to do safe abortions. So my boyfriend sold his car and we bought plane tickets for a one night stay in Puerto Rico. The day before the trip, the doctor called me and tried to double the price, which would not have been possible. He got me back later at the clinic by delaying the anesthesia that had, we had agreed to. People have asked if I ever regretted my decision. 
I would have had to give up my first job and my first apartment and move back in with my parents, who would have been kind but profoundly ashamed. The financial status of my child and myself would have been precarious for the foreseeable future. But the main reason I was determined to end the pregnancy, regardless of any risk, was because I was not ready to be a mother. I knew, even at that stage of my life, that entering motherhood would be a lifetime responsibility, even if I gave my baby up for adoption, even if my child grew up and refused to speak to me. I knew then, and I know now, that motherhood lasts until your last breath. No one should have to take that on against her will.